Hi everyone, welcome to episode 4 of Astronomics. Today we're going to be talking about space tourism. In 2001, Dennis Tito visited the International Space Station, paying $20 million, which is more than $20.4 million 2020 dollars, becoming the first space tourist. With the development of space, space tours and short-term space visits are going to become more frequent, with the big three private space companies all either solely or partially aiming towards normalizing this leisure activity. So, today, Hugh and I will be discussing space tourism. So, Hugh, I'm going to kick it over to you. Right off the bat, would you be a space tourist? Absolutely. Um, my, so, I'd sooner, here's the thing, I'll add a dimension to that. I'd sooner be a space tourist than a space resident. Okay, so you want to you you dip your toe in it. Yeah, and I know all the listeners are going to be like, non-committal cue or whatever you know or whatever or maybe they'll say things like normal people say things i don't know but uh yeah i would sooner be a space tourist because i definitely i think like a lot of people would be yeah dip your toe in it's weird uh i like travel is the travel industry today it feels like it's uh i guess it's always been experience driven but and i'm not the biggest social media person but it feels like it is like people out there to collect experiences. And that's like, that's such, isn't that such a desirable little token, the pictures you could have on a space station or some such thing. I think my biggest problem, I'm out on space tourism because I'm terrified of heights. I like flying, but I, I just don't like heights. If I'd ever walk up a flight of stairs, I'd be very happy. Um, so I'm probably out just because I'm a, I'm a coward. I think that, 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 that is why I see. I think one of the funny aspects when we talk about space tourism is that, like, that gentleman who we talked about in the intro, uh, you know, paid, quote, almost $30 million today. And the goal of, like, the big three private space companies is to, like, lower that cost as, as low as you can. My question is, like, how much can you lower that? Like, what am I giving up by not paying $30 million? Like, is there, like, uh, there doesn't appear to be a safety issue. It seems like technology has largely solved these problems over the last 20 years. Um... But also, I but I think there's a, um, you know, th there has to be some sort of cost efficiency. Like, for example, a, a fighter plane, which, you know, the F-35 costs over $100 million a unit, has an ejector seat. But, like, when I'm on, uh, uh, you know, I'm taking a regional airliner, like, I don't have an ejection sheet and a parachute. So that's a cost efficiency that, that had to be phased out. And granted, like, traveling in a plane is, like, the safest way to travel by far. And I assume, like, we... Space has actually largely, there has been obvious fatalities in space, but they haven't been over, there hasn't been a ton of fatalities, and actually nobody's ever died in orbit. It's always been during reentry. So it seems relatively safe. Um, so, but it, maybe it's just, uh, I think there's a lot of human nature that's going to make it kind of difficult uh, to get over it mentally for it. Probably like the first people who got on an airplane, <laughs> even though airplanes are way safer than, than uh, ships were to get across the Atlantic. But it doesn't be crazy to be the first guy in like a DC three and be like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go visit New York. What? You're gonna get a metal bird? <laughs> right. That is kind of. It's so weird that that's such an afterthought now that it is is in a cert. It's a matter of degree and not kinds. Like it is such a flying in general. It's so preposterous that like now we think it's an afterthought of a flight from New York to Los Angeles. It's uh, totally mundane, but 
it's the same kind of risks you're assuming. You can't be more dead from a plane crash that is from what? Like, what are they average? Like 17, 20,000? I'm assuming we have some aviation listeners, maybe. Yeah. And, like, then those people, for me not to know what the average cruising altitude of, a, like, a commercial jetliner is. 30, uh, about 30,000, 30, 35,000 right. in one direction, it, 40 in the other. Right. It, like, clears. It, it's, like, like, one of the things that, like, clears Everest. It not that, oh, yeah. Like, it always, like, all right. Yeah. Okay. So it's, like, like you said, like 35, 40,000, like I'm presuming and now the aviation people are going to be like, well, there's countermeasures in place. I, I, I don't know. I'm presuming that like, if you fall to your cataclysmic untimely death from an airliner at that altitude, like you're just going to be just as dead as if there's a problem when you've like, are in like, uh, just exiting orbit and like that form of aviation, if you will, like if, and you, and you die in some accident there. So it's really a matter of those are the same kind of risks you're assuming when you're one type of tourist, like traditionally seen on Earth, versus a, like a space tourist. And you use the self you in a self lacerating way. You describe yourself as a coward earlier. Like, well, let me tell you my like equally pathetic me, who's I think would be a willing space tourist, at least in the abstract. Let's see if I like would actually do it. I I think I would sooner or at least in the abstract, I think I would sooner do that than skydive because something about like my, and the, this is the pathetic quality, I would be so reliant on the safety of the machines and yet like it versus, I mean, I guess it's a parachute with skydiving is a, is a, is sort of a, a the parachute sort of a machine that you're relying on. But something about that um, enclosure where you're not exposed to the elements it gives at least the illusion of safety, the illusion of control. Many so, illusions dominate our lives, by the way. Philosophical, philosophical. No, cut that out, please. I actually love that. That's funny. Um, no, yeah, that's a good point. So, I'll tell you a funny story. When uh, I have a really, really uh, good friend, I mentioned him in some of the other podcasts. He's a test pilot and uh, he flies gliders. So, I'm in college and uh, we're, you know, long weekend. We go back to his place. Um, because he was maybe, you know, I, I went to college like 10 hours away from home. He was only about two or three hours. And uh, so he's a glider pilot. So we go, he's like, hey, let's go gliding. And we're getting ready to get this glider. So no engine, no nothing. And his grandfather, who's a very, very decorated Vietnam vet and a pilot, was, you know, going to tow us up. So the plane hooked up to, it looks like a modified crop duster. And, the you know, this ultralight glider is sitting on the ground. And, and as we're about to get in, I look at my friend and he's putting on a parachute. So I say, hey, where's my parachute? And he goes, oh, you don't need one. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go on. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a minute here. I don't want somebody piloting the aircraft who has a different risk profile than I do. <laughs> so he proceeds to explain to me how a parachute wouldn't help you because you wouldn't know how to use it. And I'm going, I could figure out if I need to how a parachute works very quickly. I am not a smart man. Surely they're user friendly, <laughs> no? I feel like there's not a lot of moving parts. I feel like there's one thing to pull. But uh, yeah, I was I was very upset about that. I was uh, so I didn't take off the parachute before we went up. If he, if I'm going, we're all going down. And then so after we get up there, you know, we get we're up there. We're up about uh, I think we're about seven thousand feet, maybe a little a little north of that. And he goes, Eric, uh, reach across and there's a big yellow tab. Pull that, and it's the lead cable. So you pull it and you detach from the aircraft. And uh, it, it's a gliding's amazing because it's very quiet. You can hear air coming across, but you can't really um, there's really no other noise. So I'm like, wow, you know, this is really cool. And uh, at, on the radio comes on is that a, a plane, maybe about, um, you know, 
five, ten miles away, there's sky skydivers jumping out of. And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, that's crazy. I could never go skydiving. And then I, it hit me. I'm like, I'm doing something far more dangerous than skydiving. I'm in a vehicle that has no ability to keep itself in the air. And I'm falling back to Earth. I'm just falling back to Earth uh, at a slower rate than I am accelerating across the plane of the Earth. Those people at least can land. Those people at least have a, a proven way. So after we land, flawless landing, we're fine. We get out of the aircraft. Um, and he says to me, oh, hey, by the way, you know what would have happened if the cable broke as we were taking off? Go, no. He goes, we were traveling about maybe just north of 100 miles an hour. We would have smashed in this essentially fiberglass tent into trees. And I was like, oh, this is, I'm happy you told me that afterwards. Um, and it hit me. Like, my risk profile I just did is nth degrees more risky than skydiving. It's degrees more risky. Right. Um, so, Hugh, when you say, like, perception, that, that's that's absolutely true. Like, right. I, I have done riskier behavior, statistically riskier behavior, than skydiving. And, and I still go, that seems ludicrous. Uh, yeah, but to this day, I still, I'm still angry at him. You, oh, I don't, I don't know if you could figure out how to use the... You did not action. have, like, informed consent about the risk that you assumed, really. No, like, no, no, no. And, uh, it's because he's so used to flying right it, it, the, the risk profile seems nothing to him because he's used to it um i remember we're flying afterwards we take off he has a little cub plane and we're flying back to the airstrip in Aaron's house and he's like you know we're up we're cruising we're in uh western pa uh like late october um it's beautiful all the trees are in uh coloring and uh you know i'm sitting in the front of the of the cub he's behind me and uh He's like, hey, can you grab the stick for a minute? I just want to see, make sure I know where we are. Because she's flying by like dead reckoning. He's flown the route, you know, a dozen, you know, hundreds of times probably at this point. I'm like, yeah, sure. So in my brain, Eric doesn't know a lot about flying, but what Eric knows about about math is if my altitude and speed stays the same, I'm not going to die. All right? Right. Uh, I feel like, this. so I'm holding the yoke, like white knuckling it, and he's controlling the yaw and pitch. So after about, you know, four or five minutes, I'm like, buddy, you can take the yoke back? And I look behind him, and as he was looking at the map, he put the map back, and there's an aviation magazine. He's just looking down, reading it. And I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, he goes oh, you're doing fine. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, yeah, you, you got to keep the nose just uh, like, a, uh, like a fraction of a degree down because uh, we're, we're actually uh, we're actually hitting towards us. We if we continue on the way you're flying, oh, we'd stall. And I was like, these are things I don't know and should not be in the control of the aircraft over. <laughs> and again, higher risk profile probably than space travel. High, definitely a higher risk profile than skydiving. Yeah, in my brain, I was like, oh, no, I'd feel safer than if I jumped out of a uh, out of a plane in a process that I know has almost a 0% chance of killing me. Yoke, pitch, yaw, and nose? You're a man that claims to know nothing about aviation? You, you officious little son of a gun. Uh, I know these things conceptually, but it is funny how we how we perceive, like, I do a lot of math in my, in my job, so, like, I have a, probably way too much confidence and ability to do math. Like, you know, we'll have to solve a problem using pretty advanced equations. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll figure it out. Uh, I think we all become cavalier in what we're experts in. And uh, I'm far from expert in parachuting. Well, this is what I've said to, uh, like, people Like people ask me, like, uh, you, I guess there's schools of thought because I've been asked about, about skydiving before. And uh, they were like... Someone cited an example of someone they knew who went skydiving, and they were like, "Yeah, he's an instructor. He does it every day. He does about three runs a day. I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I could be misquoting here what's typical of the runs, but according to the, it's his profession. He did and he does it daily, right? And I'm like, see what concerns me there? Complacency. You know what I mean? When it becomes too regular, I don't want to assume the risk 
that this person like is phoning it in. Is phoning it in, and like you know what I mean. Woke up a little late. It was like a little bit late for work this morning. Doesn't under no longer understands the gravity, pun intended, of what they're doing, and like you know what I mean. And so I just have to go with this like this Johnny come lately. This 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 guy who's been lulled into like complacency by his oh, supposed expertise forgetting he is a constant adversary ad, a constant adversary of nature you know what i mean that's why I, I, yeah I, I i i like to i like to have like guys i would want to do it with someone who's done it before but is still fastidious to make sure all of the all the buckles are buckled and the you know everything's strapped in correctly now hugh what you just brought up is a real issue that actually nasa has um, what all this really comes down to is confidence and process. Um, that in order to have space tourism, we need to be confident in the systems that get us there. Yes. Whether and that's a per- confidence is always a perception issue. It's not that is, well. I'd say mostly a perception issue. Mm-hmm. The space shuttle Columbia uh, disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, during the report, do you know that when? So for some of the listeners who may be younger or not familiar with it, what caused the space uh, shuttle Columbia to effectively dissolve during re-entry was that one of the there's all these little uh, pl- heat plates that exist on the bottom of um, the space shuttle and a piece of insulation from the fuel tank came and hit it and struck it and caused enough damage to create a crack significant enough to damage the space shuttle now they knew about it day two of the of the mission and they actually emailed the astronauts and told them about it and showed them the video nobody was concerned about it because it happened all the time and if this crack was smaller, say it was only four inches, it'd be fine. Probably there's probably been dozens of successful landings by Columbia, or even by other space or uh, other space uh, shuttles with this damage. So it, it wasn't uncommon. They actually told them that it's not an issue, and they agreed that it wasn't an issue. Um, but when NASA went through what could have stopped, what could have stopped it? They did, or what could have stopped this tragedy? They went through the process of figuring out why this became what it came to. Why did it become okay for a strike to occur on the leading edge of a wing that that, that took, mm. you know, these lives? Why was that risk tolerable? Exactly. And what NASA came up with is a term, normalization of deviance, which is the idea that because you something, you repeat an action mm. over and over and over again, you become more and more likely to accept risk. I think this is important. One, um, that, and it's funny because this would have never been tolerated. And this isn't Eric's opinion. This is something that has, these are NASA reports, during the Gemini, Mercury, and certainly not during the Apollo missions, but became more accepted as we've got more technology. Um, but that's what you can see with space tourism is that that normalization of deviation, if that becomes too normal, you may see space tourism die in its infancy. Because of these tragedies, because the risks are so much higher, um, planes can have failures and still land. I mean, for a long time, you can only have four-engine aircrafts go over the go over oceans because you need to have a certain amount of distance between the nearest airport. But now, like the Boeing seven eighty seven, I think it can travel up to three hundred sixty minutes away from a divergence airport. That's why you actually you ever wonder why we don't see three-engine airplanes anymore? It's because two engines have become so reliable and more acceptable that. That's why the, the 1011 TriStar, which is like my favorite plane of all time, and why the Boeing 227, you don't need triple engine planes anymore. 
Oh my god, there's just so much to go. There's, I, I, I just literally covered my mouth and there might have been, uh, I don't know if that did any, uh, any harm to the pickup of the mic, but there's so much to go off of there. Like, if you think about, like, people with procedures at work. So there is this, like, the, they, this, when you have this uh, stereotyping of, like, of discrete steps that show you, like, that, that embody, like, the, the, the proper and the ideal way a task is performed, and in this case, I imagine safety checks in the case of NASA and these heat shields, like, there is, um, I think people could understand it. it's common that there are these deviations, like, if people do tasks at work, potentially, like, they might have a way of achieving the uh, ultimate objective, but not being a purist and and diligent to following the procedure of the official way in which to get to get it done. And that sort of, it lulls you into a false confidence, potentially, about you performing the task as it should be performed, as long as you, you, you basically taking shortcuts to get to the, to the end result. And, um, it's just that, so that I think that that's so understandable, even in terms of like where the consequences and the stakes are so high and like that's something that's so hazardous to your safety, like anything with space travel. And it also goes to show like, you should never take for granted. I can recall, uh, an evidentiary, uh, uh, case and it, it, it was actually in the um, in the state of Massachusetts and what happened was that there were these there when drug labs test classify various types of illicit drugs and those classifications correspond to types of uh, offenses and charges that could be brought against a defendant there was this there was this that's heavily presumptive that all the procedures are being followed correctly but in actuality what was happening was that there was deviation from the procedure and so the ultimate consequences of that were people were getting these these charges which would did not actually correspond with their literal offenses because people weren't being diligent to following the procedure they were taking shortcuts and we as a society chose for whatever arbitrary reason to assign different levels of harms to these different drug classifications and people lost years of their liberty. Now these, you could argue like there's, there's a tendency to maybe be unsympathetic towards these people because there's really, it's not in dispute that they committed a crime and it's merely our classification of what that's in dispute of what, what exact infraction that they actually performed. But we as a society decided that being particular with these procedures is important. And so everything, you can't, you can't just have this reliance that things were done correctly. You have to show, you have to present a resistance test. So basically, what, sorry, this is a long loop, but what I want to get to is we're talking about the, the problem is here is like comfortable operators. And you need comfortable operators because at a certain point, I do think you need to take, take certain risks in order to demonstrate that you can do it, is there an argument to be made that the operator be made willfully blind to the capabilities of the technologies they wield? Like, for instance, say the heat shield could can tolerate up to a certain amount, give that information to an operator, when in fact the heat shield has greater tolerance to encourage the operator to take on less risk than is necessary. That might be have its own problems, but that just struck me now. What do you think of that? Or please segue into anything else you'd like. 
So, no, that's interesting. So um, that's why you'll see some of the new reentry capsules want to be made out of like stainless steel and, you know, things that don't require heat shields. Heat shields aren't required to reenter. You can have different mediums that cause it. Heat shields are just very good because they're lighter, but they do require a lot of maintenance and ground crew. Elon Musk has one of my favorite quotes. Uh, I, uh, what a surprise. Uh, I'm a, Eric's a huge fan of Elon Musk. Uh, but no, there's a really funny thing. He says, I asked my engineers, what did they engineer out instead of engineered in? Where the simpler process is, the less likely it is to fail. And that's true not just in engineering. That's also true in, in statistics and model building. We call it Occam's razor, which is the idea that they modeled the least assumptions is probably most correct. Um, when you hear the old, uh, you know, maybe our parents' generation is an old tale that goes, when you think, when you hear hooves, think horse, not zebra. Um, but no, Hugh, you bring up a, that normalization and deviation is going to be very important when we talk about space, uh, space tourism, having confidence in the process. People will tolerate risk. People will absolutely tolerate risk to go to space. And look at some of the best resorts in the world. They are in countries with incredible incredible violence and incredibly high murder rates. There's no correlation between murder rates and ability to go to people who want to go to certain places for tourism. There absolutely isn't. And we, we see, we see that in, in the, in the Western hemisphere. It is absolutely, so people will take risk. People will get on a plane and go there. People will go on a boat. People will drive there. People will take risk for tourism. Normalization of deep. So there's only been about 5,900 space uh, launches. But, um, you know, with flights, I think there was like over 100 million flights last year. Sorry, that, that might, never might be off. I know it's in the millions. Well, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good ballpark to know yeah. anyway. Yeah, and uh, it's just becoming incredible. It, flight, flying has always just been a very, very safe mode since, for, for a very, very long time. And, and largely World War II helped spur that along. Um, but, but toleration of risk is going to be such an interesting, and that's really at the heart of kind of what this episode is. It's like, we're going to talk about space tourism, but it's really fun to talk about space tourism. But that normalization, the deviation, that tolerance, the risk, we, we as a society, we as operators, we as, you know, people who want to talk about space need to get that risk threshold so low that people can go into space. Because it is against luxury. It, exactly. It's against, it's against luxury. And Hugh, that's kind of a segue into, unless you have anything else you want to throw on the, the so, terrifying risk aspect well, of it. Well, simply to reinforce, like, I think you, you had mentioned some some uh, human-created risks, potentially. But even uh, another example, I mean, I, I saw a news story over the summer that I think got some traction in, in the, let's say, the, the mainstream press that uh, there was lines to get atop of Everest to take to take the picture. You know what I mean? And that that just shows you how many people are willing to, to assume risk or... I mean, I don't, I don't know how. I would think safari in Africa is very popular, but I would think that the why the power of those animals, I would think that that it has some dangers attending to it that you know are I mean, undeniable. Yeah, I mean, look at how many people die from hippo attacks. It's absolutely you know, those are largely tourism. Gotta look at those numbers. Have yeah. not. I mean, gotta look at those numbers, <laughs> listeners. Look at those numbers. Um, but Hugh, to steal your segue. Um, Okay, so, you know, we got over the hurdle. It's low risk. You're up there in orbit. Nobody's ever died in orbit that we know of. Right. Hypothetically. Um, hypothetically. Allegedly. Um, oh, 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 right. Sorry. Please that. Yeah, sorry. I, I misunderstood. But, like, saying in the, in the eventual future that tourism, it seems to be running like clockwork. Yes. Go on. So, you know, we've gotten over. We've lowered the risk. We're going into space. All right. Where are we going? So, Hugh, you brought up a beautiful point. Use the word that uh, I have... Um, been thinking about when I was when we were going through this production, which is 
luxury. You get to space, all right? Let's say made-up company, space, whatever, wants to have a destination that you're going to go there. You're not just going to go up and come back down. You're going to stay a few days. You're going you're gonna to go to space. You're going to, you know, take your Instagram photos. You're going to do whatever you want to do. What do you think? Well, we'll start here. What do you think the first generation of space destination in low Earth orbit is going to look like? You think it's going to look like the National Space Station? I think, so. I, that, I, I think so because that's more, it's a more controllable environment for, um, for for uh, providers, I would think for like for tourism companies that would be like touching down on a on an interstellar body or whatever, like touching down on the surface of the moon or, or whatever. Uh, though I think that that will come too eventually. At first, I think it's gonna be it's gonna be space cruise lines. They're gonna have you around for a few days. They're gonna like try and get you different views. You know what I mean? Like try and try and plan space your, buffet. Uh, yeah. The food's gonna be terrible. It's gonna be so bad. It's gonna be prison food. I wonder. Oh my! We gotta learn more. Like that's a hey, listeners. That's a simple tweet at the astronauts, is it not? How's the food? (laughs) You know what I mean. I I will say I always liked the uh, the the like hyper dry. Uh, oh, dehydrated the, ice cream. What is oh, it's dehydrated ice cream. Yeah, yeah. Yes. This, this, the astro ice cream that that actually that that's kind of that's kind of good. Yeah. But, but, do, um, do you think there's gonna be a novelty to the first generation of space? Like, do you think they want to make it look like a space station? Like, you know, they're gonna make everybody wear like ten foil it's outfits. Be fake, isn't it? <laughs> You're right. It's gonna be. It's gonna be. That's a. That's a really interesting prediction. They're gonna like they're gonna jazz it up with the, with the space motifs, aren't they? They're, I think the first generation is gonna be a novelty aspect. That's more your domain, but I think that's for sure. No, they're gonna everything's gonna be like as much chrome as they can have. There's gonna be like like they're gonna have like things you've seen in like that's come out of science because science fiction is gonna predate the science reality that the, the expectation is going to like create the norm. So like. You know, obviously we already have things like there's popular uh, natural language search engines on our phones such that you can press a button and ask a question. We do not mention people who do not advertise. <laughs> not but like, so there's going to be these like these computers that are like talking, but like there's probably going to be these computers when in situations where you don't even need to have one there because it just builds the aesthetic of space and that's kind of people's expectations are going to be created in like, in like, fictional depictions of what space can be or what space should be and then people are going to actually think space like should be that way and so in order to gratify that it's going to be like an artificial representation of like are are listeners understanding what i'm saying right now i'm so sorry this is so unclear please (laughs) no no this is this is exactly um this is absolutely exactly what we're uh what i'm hitting at which is I think you're gonna have like asteroid detection system where it's like, what? You is like if an asteroid came anywhere near Earth, like we 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 know that asteroids are fairly large. Um, I think there's gonna be like 2001: A Space Odyssey, whatever that pro- how was the program, whatever. Yes, yes. Like, yes. You know, be like open gate one, and it's like yes, but in reality, it's just like a motion sensor that opens There's the motion gate. Motion sensor, exactly. You wouldn't I, need that. I feel like you're gonna have a lot of pumped in noise, like every time you open a door, but it's like, wait, there's no pressure change. Why are we doing right. that? I don't think you can get like, the ISS is pretty innovative. It has Wi-Fi. It has really good Wi-Fi. It has like a very modern bathroom. No, I don't think you're going to get any of that. I don't think you're going to get like things that like, wait, the ISS is built in the early 2000s. And it's like, you know, designed in the nineties and is really innovative. Um, it's very, there's a lot of creature comforts there. 
No, you're not going to get that in space. You're going to get like the, like, I'm uh, going to look like, like cruise ships and like the 1920 style beds that you saw in like a lot of like 60s and 70s uh, science fiction. I think there's going to be a whole novelty of it. The, the, the cruise ship idea you brought up, I love that. I, I think because they're going to have a lot of that, but I think you're going to go come to a part of the space cruise ship and it's going to be like a casino or it's going to be right. like some funny, like take you away from that reality. You're going to have some like, end of their career magicians um, right even like, space magic oh my god like the it's funny because i hear there are other podcasts with a lot of like comedians and this is like a frequent topic that they address is like the cruise ship gig and it's like almost like um like what's often all right so i'll mention this entity it's like the blood of Voldemort for like comedians or this i yeah. think this is what they're getting at it's like it's reliable income but they like so it keeps them alive but they like hate doing it and it's like soul crushing for them because it's like these this this audience that didn't really come there for stand-up comedy but they like they need to occupy themselves some ways because like if you're a tourist in space like even me like obviously i'm going to be odd and for a long time i'm going to look out like the panoramic views of the windows and see oh my this is amazing to view but no matter what that's gonna the your your interest in that's going to hold your interest for some time and then that's going to dissipate and then you look out again like and, and it'll get you grab your interest again but in those in those intermediaries you need another way to be entertained so they're just going to get like unfortunately some like down on their luck entertainer to be up there for like really long periods of time i imagine just like working the crowd yeah like think of how expensive it is to like fly somebody like a business class somewhere and then like right. multiply that like you're gonna be up there for a while i have this vision like, you know, there's parts of the cruise ship you can't go to. It's just for staff. Um, yeah. that you're going to have, like, this, like, really sci-fi business. This really <sighs> sci-fi area. Yeah. But then you're going to have, like, the, you know, the towel boy smoking a cigarette. And some, like, behind the scenes, very modern-looking area. <laughs> just being like, I got to get back to work. And they have to put on their, like, fake space helmet and green face paint and float back in. And, like, scare some kids or something. Couple things. Oh, my God. Yeah, the mask on. Couple things. <laughs> the mask on. You hand gestured while you said that. You, like, smoked and flicked a cigarette, even though there's no video recording. <laughs> Two. Also, can you light cigarettes? Up? Like, is Because, uh, isn't it, unless it's, like, an artificial environment, the, the flame is just going to come out of some orb and, like, be, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, but we'll have space, yeah, space cigarettes. Yeah, right, space cigarettes. Up. All right, I've got I to I reel myself in here a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself, but, um. And also, it's weird, like, um, I was just thinking about, so we're thinking it probably is going to be, I think, the first generation, because I think the while it's still going to be risky, you can control more risks, or maybe you can, at least you can perceive that you can control more risks in, like, a man-made vehicle, or, you know, being in, like, a, a space station than you think you could doing, like, actually, like, touching down on, on the moon or whatever. So presumably the first generation will be that. Um, maybe it's better to leave for later, but like the first ones are also going to be like kind of platform setting. Like they're going to kind of set some standards of like the locks, if those standards are not already set by NASA and whoever else of like the locking mechanisms between space stations and shuttles and yeah. things like that, or like other things you, we haven't necessarily even thought of. There's just so many precedents to be set oh, in that front. You, you, you're completely right. So like NASA and uh, the Russian space agency, the European space agency, um, of all come up with a uniform docking mechanism just in case there has to be a space rescue. Do you know these, the uh, the Russians actually keep a Soyuz capsule just like always attached to the ISS um, just in case you need to escape? 
That's awesome. And NASA actually had a space shuttle crew. Ooh, we're going to forget the name of it. That was on standby. That was designed to rescue people. Those must be like the coolest people. Yeah, so they would go into space and rescue somebody. But here's the, here's the crazy part. Not that, you know, doing a, a space rescue isn't crazy now. So they had, NASA has protocols for this. And the protocols are like, they read like an action movie. So you have a space shuttle. They can get a space shuttle ready. So most space shuttles go up there and they actually carry these, uh, like, they're hard to describe, but they look like giant circular um, containers that have, have extra liquid oxygen, extra, uh, extra um, water. Because um, you're not really about fuel. You're, you're in orbit. Um, and you're not going to be in there long enough to decay. Mm-hmm. So in, I, I, I read about this actually doing um, research, doing our production, and doing stuff for Space Shuttle Columbia. Which is, could they have rescued them? And they were carrying this extended life module there. It's unlike the Space Shuttle Challenger, that that disintegrated going up into space. There was no way, unfortunately. There actually is some evidence that they were unconscious, but but were still alive when they hit the water. Which is terrifying of itself. The Space Shuttle Columbia, what if they detected, they detected this, but what if they decided it was mission critical? They were too far away from an orbit to make it to ISS. Their orbit didn't line up with them. So what they ended up do, what they ended up developing was this: Could they have gone up there and, and rescued them? What if would have required is just two astronauts, the two pilots, leave everything else empty. They would have had to flow up, grab them, but they can't dock. There's no belly to belly because there's no entrance on the bottom, and you can't line up top to top because of the fins of the back of the space shuttle. It would have required one uh, space shuttle to be like imagine flat with the horizon, with you know like how a plane flies. The other one to pivot itself upside down, facing the opposite direction, and stop perfectly without hitting the, either fin. Whoa. Connect through the open bays, and they only had two astronaut suits. So you would have to bring one guy, two people would go over, another one would bring one suit back, and they'd keep doing that until they had all the astronauts on board, close it, and now they're at like max capacity. You don't have that much fuel because you're, you can't, sorry, you don't have that much oxygen and water because you, you just. You need space to bring the people. Turn around, deorbit, and come back. Two parts even crazier about that would have been a. This probably all would have taken a day. You probably all, if you would have taken off and come back in the same day. Whoa. And two, you would have left a space shuttle just orbiting in space with no way to go get it, unless you wanted to launch another team in an incredibly dangerous mission. Um, but this brings us to the lifeboats of the space cruise ship. Is something that is going to be a terrifying reality oh. of that. <laughs> that was a long segment into um, one of our one of our final areas we're going to talk about in there. But the horrifying reality that you are in space, you're going to have space. You're going to have to have uh, what do you call it? lifeboats in space? So life crafts to escape, get people back escape to Earth. Escape pods. To, to borrow the, like the, uh, the used science fiction term. Yeah. I think that is going to be absolutely terrifying because, as we talked about earlier, there is a normalization of deviation. There is risk to this. But if you're a cruise company, you can't have something like that. You can't have an entire space cruise ship go down. That will destroy space tourism forever Um, or for a very, very, very long time. So (laughs) you can have all these sci-fi stuff, but at the end of the day... You're still going to have to have a lot of stuff we see on Earth. You're going to have to have escape pods. Escape pods is such a beautiful way to word that, Hugh. Escape pods. Trust me, I didn't come up with it. Um, no, but uh, I think it was escape pods, like something out of Futurama. Um, actually, Futurama is an episode that to escape a space cruise ship. It's kind of comical, but uh, yeah, 
it's, it, it's so funny when we, we dive deeper and deeper into space tourism. All these secondary industries have to, to, to be established and, and things, you know, the, the unifying space do docking system is going to have to become standard. It's going to have to become just as standard as a seatbelt and an airplane. You have to have all these extra safety features that are going to create, are going to be, you know, big hurdles for a lot of these companies to develop because at the end of the day, when the U.S. the, the U.S. military has been the largest driver of, of space. This has been historically, it, it had, in the, I would say the Soviet military is right behind there. But at the end of the day, like, somebody in the service has an understanding of risk profile that is far greater than the average tourist. So we got to work to engineer that, that risk profile down in order for space, pro, uh, space tourism to be palatable. At least that's what my opinion is on it. Right. I mean, look, think about the, uh, <laughs> will there ever be a circumstance in which, like, for aesthetic reason, oh, we don't want this many escape pods attached to the space yeah similar to an incident the titanic with the light bulb or that i don't know if that's apocryphal or not that is that that's completely true, that's right? completely that, true yeah. oh my god that's i also heard a, a story in which like even in the crisis and I, I, please forgive me there's probably experts out there that could dispute this and so don't rely on this to be absolutely true i can't i just heard this Wow, I really established credibility right there. <laughs> um, that the social roles, like that supposedly there was an incident where someone was held at, someone who was like the security for a wealthy family held at gunpoint other people so that their, his employers could get on a lifeboat first and then supposedly threaten these other people off. Even in the crisis, like, it didn't, in that case, he didn't unify with the rest of humanity and simply just, like, you know, make other arrangements outside of social hierarchy so, as to who gets on. Yeah, um, there are some crazy stories. There. That's actually why, like, the high amount of deaths in the third class, and I don't know, I don't think the Titanic had storage class, but is actually what caused much of the uproar. If you look at primary sources from there, it was the, that so many died were third class, and that's what actually caused people to be pretty uh, vocal about reform. What's crazy about we you know we just talked about a, a, a rescue ship that could theoretically go and grab um, people off a damaged space shuttle. When that happened, so when Titanic sent out the SOS, there was an older ship liner that was piloted by this, uh, that was captained by this man who would go on to have a very pretty illustrious uh, service in World War One uh, and actually be involved in a lot more uh, rescues. I believe he actually was insisted in the rescue of a sister ship of the Titanic too. All those ice fields, so there's actually ships closer, but because of the ice patch, it was hard for them to turn around. This captain was awoken by his, by his uh, uh, what do you call it, his telegraph operator, told about it. He then proceeded to get, get to the helm, order the, the, um, them to shut off all the heat to the ship so that the furnaces could practice powering. The ship was designed for 17 knots. He had this thing at 23, which is just like as powerful as he's going to go. He navigated through all the ice patches, um, I mean, just, just absolute, just confidence. And what was crazy about that is the, this, this ship was notorious for, it was almost like, imagine like only a first class airplane. That's just what this ship was. And all those first class passengers, when they woke up and it's like 40 degrees in their room. When they found out why they started, um, preparing their beds to, for people coming in off the water, they started, um, stripping some of the, the drapes out of their own rooms and their own clothes so there was dry clothes on the deck as they started pulling survivors of Titanic up. And a lot of people accredit one, that, cap, that captain got awards from the uh, from Britain, got awards from the U.S. and from a lot of places. 
one for he i mean he cut through that ice patch with an amazing amount of precision and skill in a ship that was not designed to turn that fast to get to them it's absolutely it's one of those stories that's lost in the titanic of how many that guy took over i think he took over 1100 people out of the water that night which is almost all of them Tuesday. yeah and um but it's funny because it was all first class passengers who when who actively helped pull people out of the water and gave them their clothes and everything because and didn't complain about the temperature being dropped didn't complain about all that stuff all the uh, you know basically every ounce of power being diverted to those engines um so i i, I, <laughs> I actually love like the history of of uh, of, crew, of uh what do you call ocean liners it, it, so I, I do think that um, when you look at kind of like the, I think you, I, I think we are going to see the first space rescue in our lifetime, by the way. I would agree with that. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a great unifying moment for humanity. Well, I guess, yeah, like, like in the way we've described it, like there have been the, uh, the, we've talked about like Apollo 13 and, and, and whatever a little bit, but like this actual like rescue crew going up, those people are, that's, I, I, I agree with that just because more activity and we're, yeah, that's like there's going to be a crisis that someone's going to respond to. That's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So uh, down in Antarctica, because we have the obligatory, I have to mention Antarctica. How have we not? <laughs> oh, by the way, Antarctica, new sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Is they they struggle with the protocols because they keep like twelve people at the South Pole over winter. Like, how would you get somebody out out there? And they've taught. I don't know. They now this is allegedly. Because I don't know if there's ever been formal government documents released about that, but there are plans uh, by those agencies that if they had it, you know, it's pitch black, there's no light, and a lot of times the, um, there's pretty severe cloud cover, of being able to land on a uh, blue ice runway in the South Pole. There was had to be an emergency, but they've had they had um, not on the South Pole, but in Antarctica, they've actually had emergencies and they've flown. Um, you know, like actually some you know, large air- airliners have landed planes. To fly, they have to carry enough fuel that they can fly there, loiter for thirty minutes, and then fly back. And that, those are incredible distances. They've had people with a med- with medical emergencies in Antarctica, and they've been like, "Well, we're gonna figure this out." And they've landed the planes in awful conditions, got the people out, and they've survived. Um, it's so it's something like we love the good story. Like we yeah. we as humans love stories like that. Like we're gonna come and get you. Like it may, it may be painful, but we're gonna get you. Rescue is some of the best of humanity. Rescue is an endeavor. Yeah. So I know we talked. I know this was a space tourist episode, but you know that was really just a, a um, you know that that is a framework where, that uh, we kind of want to talk about this this idea of like what risk are you willing to take, listeners? What risk do you think? enough people will tolerate that you can make the economics of space tourism work. All right. Um, we're kind of wrapping things up. We just want, I didn't want to pose this question and we carry it back my way. Uh, what is your number one space destination within our solar system? I'm going to have to go with Venus. So, uh, you know, the sister planet to earth. I just think it has so much like volatility. I think it has so much, interest like we have all these pictures of mars we have like some kind of grainy footage of venus i'm assuming if i'm visiting Venus, i'm gonna be in some sort of like you know old-timey like uh blimp ass uh you know structure that i'm floating on that very dense atmosphere but i think it'd be fascinating to see like what's underneath all those clouds so Hugh, what what would be your number one space destination call me basic the moon <laughs> like i hate the like the moon as we're gonna um i think that the one thing that's really cool about uh our moon which makes it a desirable 
destination for me is one of its natural aesthetic features, or at least it looks this way from from Earth. The fact that it's like this white pearl with the the the, the, the uh, like the Oreo looking dust. Oh, the moon kind of looks delicious to me. <laughs> I thought that was weird. Oh god, the listeners, the listeners, no. Uh, yeah, but I think that that's. Um, it would give probably a really great view of the earth if you looked at the Apollo pictures and to see those in person. Because I want to look, when I'm out in outer space, I still want to look back at the earth. That's why I'm not the best space. I'm, that's why, and that is like almost like indicative of why I could never be a space resident is because like I, I would want to be, be back to earth uh, eventually, or like look back to earth. As, and you, I guess you need people that have a reckless abandon that will just like turn around and say, I'm Audi on this, you know, and, yeah. like, and just go. But Well, I mean, that's the essence of the show, right? Space tourism. You can come back home. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Yes. Thank you, guys. Great to have uh, any new listeners joining us. If by chance there's uh, people who work in uh, some of the major private space companies or NASA who listen to this just to like snicker at us or something, hey, you guys work in space companies and we're the dreamers. So think about that, you know, and uh, again, listeners, email us any of your questions, topics you'd like covered. And have you composed a tweet for an astronaut yet? Think about how cool. To avail yourself of something. So, am I crazy to think that's cool? No, uh, that's awesome. I think it's that we, we we did start a space podcast, so maybe we're a little bit of the outliers right, in that scenario. Right. I'm sorry. Go on. Please, <laughs> please take it from here. No, absolutely, Hugh. Uh, we uh, you covered everything I want to cover, and I'll, I'll talk to you guys on the opposite of the tr- transition. Well, thank you everybody for listening. This was your co-host of Astronomics, Eric. And uh, you can catch us at astro-nomics.com. That's A-S-T-R-O-N-O-M-I-C-S dot com. You can also find us on Facebook, uh, where our Facebook page is just Astronomics. Give us a like. Make sure to follow us. Remember, we have new satellite episodes every Thursday at 8 a.m. And brand new astronomic episodes every Monday at 8 a.m. Make sure to leave us a message or drop us a line in our email. And, uh, you know, we love hearing from listeners. Thank you and stay safe until the next time we talk again.